Hello everybody and welcome back to What Would The Smart Party Do? No special guest this time, just us two special soldiers. It's me <laughs> and my good friend Baz. How are you doing Baz? He's very special. <laughs> yeah, it's good, good to be back mate. Uh, yeah, here we go again. More, more discussion from the, from the cutting edge of the old timer hobby. <laughs> the bleeding edge, as long as you've rolled to hit and done damage. Yes. Uh, we've been inspired recently. We've been looking back through the back catalogue mm. and noticed that we've done chapters on uh, magic and combat and initiative and s systems and all manner of bits chunked up together. And um, the Frankenstein RPG boys have got a podcast, and girls, in fact, uh, where they've been picking best bits from games to make up a monster of a, an RPG. And that, that gave us pause to look back at our back catalogue of all the times we've done stuff like that in sections. But... We've more or less isolated it out to things like combat and did a whole hour on that and initiative and did a whole hour on that. Uh, and this time we thought we'd go over some of the the big hitters, perhaps games that you should have in your collection or at least have looked at, and try and skip through a bunch of different sections and see if we can come up with some good examples of those particular things. I think, I think it'd be worthwhile us doing, partly to reminisce, partly for your edification, but also if you're out there in listener land and you fancy adding some new things to your repertoire and expanding your horizons a little bit. It might be good to give this a listen and see what cool stuff we come up with that you may not have. Exactly. And uh, and also, we, <laughs> we've got quite the back catalogue now, going back. I think we were scrolling back and stopped around 2015. So uh, it may be that some of our previous recommendations, for example, for the greatest magic system that you could ever have in your library, there may have been some other games released in the last decade <laughs> that weren't covered at the <laughs> yeah. time. We've had a couple of Olympic games and a pandemic. So history marches on, and there doesn't appear to be any shortage of new releases on a weekly basis into our hobby. So... Um, well, maybe we can bring ourselves a bit up to speed and see if any of our old classics that we always recommend have been superseded by hot young things. Yeah, indeed. I've, I swore off Kickstarter last year, or, or at least managed to moderate myself. <laughs> uh, this year it's been different. I'm just, I've been pressing buy quite a lot, and I'm, I don't know if I will come to rude that again. Maybe in 2022 I'll say I'm never kickstarting again. But mm. uh, There's lots of new and interesting projects out there. So, yes, I've been pressing the button a lot, and it'll be good to see what new stuff's coming out. As you say, there's new things coming out all the time, and that gives us more grist for the mill, which is cool. There is. Um, and also, uh, there is new hobbyists entering the hobby all the time. Thank goodness. Um, and it's sometimes a little bit shocking to realise that this hobby's been around for an in excess of 40 years now. So if you jumped into the hobby thanks to, I don't know, the cyberpunk video game or Critical Role or whatever it was that got you interested in the hobby and you've stumbled across this podcast, this could be as good a place as any and will give you a, sort of a quick overview of some of the, the big classics, the big hitters, the stuff that stood the test of time and then some of the hot new stuff as well. And we're going to break it down, I think. We'll, we'll take a leaf out of the Frankenstein Boys book here and girls and uh, maybe take it one limb at a time have a look at maybe character generation, maybe a little bit about combat, some core mechanical stuff. Uh, basically, the kind of chapters that you would get in a big, fat, traditional RPG book. We'll take it a chapter at a time and look at some of the best-in-class and some of the exemplars or options that you might have out there if you're looking to become a bit of a student of RPGs. If you want a, a nice, compact library that shows you some of the different takes that are out there, then hopefully we'll give you something to chew on. Shall we, shall we start at the beginning with making characters, then? Is that a good place to begin? It is as good as any. Many, many games do that, don't they? The character generation goes right up at the front. 
uh, it's normally vying with the setting. Uh, it's one or the other comes first. Let's go in for character generation, mate. Let's roll 3d6 in order six times, see what comes up. Harsh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that is one of the things you notice in books, actually. Some of them do give you a bunch of setting first, but some just seem to dive more or less straight into you make a character. Yeah. And you have no idea what half the words mean, which is a bit strange. Hmm. But yes, something has to come first. So there's the traditional thing that you mentioned there of just rolling up some stats and assigning some skills, maybe and picking a career or class and that kind of thing, which is one way. One of the more interesting ways of doing it is something like the life path system from Burning Wheel, where you can kind of pick the journey that your characters already took. And this isn't anything necessarily new, because Traveller did something similar way, way back when. But I like the idea of focusing down certain paths by picking careers. And you can also look at something like Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, for example, which has careers, but then you tend to build your career or pick different ones as the game progresses rather than having done that all in the past. Mm. So you've got something to look back on. I think the the main exemplar or something that people should look at if they haven't is Apocalypse World or any of the games that come after that or things like Blades in the Dark or other Forged in the Dark games because they do it slightly differently in having a, like a half-made character, I want to say. Mm. So you get a archetype, you get a playbook or whatever it's called in the particular game and that's got some options on it, but you you pretty much got your character there or thereabouts. Uh, if you pick, for example, um, a spider in Blades of the Dark, then you're going to be all about spies and um, like trying to discern secrets and things like that. And your character sheet will be set up with lots of that kind of stuff on there. But it's even got things like uh, examples of what your name might be. If a uh, list of abilities which you have to pick, but it says if you don't know which one to pick, just pick the top one because put the best one first. That kind of stuff. It's got a list of the special gear that you might have, so you don't have to go into shopping lists and things. It's already there on the character sheet, and you use it when you use it in the game, rather than having to spend hours shopping or deciding what you're going to take with you, or encumbrance rules, or anything like that. So yes, that's my first pick for character generation, is having pre-baked characters, or at least you know half-baked, and then you get some options to put on top. And uh, there's already on those sort of characters, like implied setting, it gives you ideas about what your character will want to do, what they're good at, what they have special equipment for, all that kind of stuff, even your name. And I think that's that's like, if you want to get started with a new game quickly, you can kind of look through all the playbooks of Apocalypse World or similar games and have a good idea of what the game's about and what the sort of characters are going to be that have adventures or tell stories in that setting. Mm. No, that's a, that's a good choice, mate, and that's kind of my preferred way to go these days. I will I will step back a little bit in time uh, to give a, a counterpoint to the stuff that you've suggested. I kind of half joked at the start of this about rolling up characters. Do you know that's probably something that very rarely happens in any game system these days and hasn't actually happened for a long time? Yeah, actually rolling up a character is, is kind of rare. I think almost invariably now your game system of choice will probably involve choice rather than randomness. I like a bit of randomness in games and, and, I'm, and I know that there will be people who stick up for uh, the OSR uh, way of rolling up st stats and then playing with what you've got but generally speaking I think the preference out there is for people to assign things and to build um, and I think there's, there's broadly there's two ways to go with that kind of traditional way there's um, class based which has evolved into the playbooks and stuff that you've discussed uh, where you will take a couple of options it might be barbarian and then you might pick a race or a species to go with that in a classic fantasy game possibly a background you know put together some skills packages that way so you'll be like taking off of a menu, essentially. 
Um, or there's, a, there's, there's, there's the complete sort of buffet selection thing where you're going to build it from the ground up. Uh, and the old war horse for that would probably be something like GURPS, uh, which for a very, very long time has championed that idea that you can do anything you want and it is pretty granular. Uh, so you pick every single point on your character sheet, every single floor, perk, advantage, disadvantage, every piece of equipment. It's, um, it's a spreadsheet, <laughs> essentially, your character sheet. Uh, and that's fine, and you can build it that way. So depending on how you want to approach the game, you're either, I think, going to be the sort of person who wants to have a few ideas uh, thrown into the pot for you to get you going, to get you spun up, like, you know, give me some lists to pick from, or you're the sort of person who likes to imagine a character from whole cloth and then tries to find a system that will let you build that thing that you've got in your head. So Dungeons mm. & Dragons, class, race, alignment, all of those kind of picks, GURPS, um, other, other games where you're going to build your character like piece by piece, uh, potentially stuff like RuneQuest, I suppose, uh, where you're going to be like chiseling away at something until you've got your character coming out of it and you've got yourself a nice big sturdy character sheet full of stuff and it's exactly what you want or it's played to find out what it's going to be like. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think a sort of mix between the two is something like a lot of free league games like Vesson or Tales from the Loop where you pick uh, an archetype but kind of like where you assign your skills and attributes for a better phrase uh, it's completely up to you and then the sort of drop down lists where you can select things from to add to your character are all things like what you think of the other player characters or a secret mm. that your character has and it's all like in game stuff to build the party as a group and have some interaction between them which is not necessarily to do with your character specifically if you know what I mean like lots of other picks or decisions you make about how good your character is at casting a fireball or what was his backstory? Who was his enemy? Or something like that. And I think it's quite good that those sort of free league games have the an extra bit of picking with giving you the springboard for ideas for how your characters all fit together. Which, of course, I think the, the best one I can think of that did that was um, Spirit of the Century, a sort of fake game that yeah. did quite an involved session of writing stories about each other and stuff like that. So that's if you want a, a, like a, how to get your characters together definitely pick up Spirit of the Century and give a flick through for character generation on that because that was like a really involved and deep way of doing it whereas I still recommend the free league way of just having one liners that you might think of all the other characters in your party and that's mm. something you can port to D&D &D or any other game you want to do so that kind of idea of uh, just networking and how you have connections to some NPCs that might be important to the campaign on one liners I think that's all really useful and handy mm-hmm yeah, the, uh, the the game that you mentioned there, uh, Spirit of the Century, is based on Fate. Uh, there's a lot of Fate games available, a lot of Fate games. Um, I've had huge amounts of fun generating characters in Fate, and usually, usually done as a group session. Uh, I think mm -hmm. session zero of games like Fate and uh, Powered by the Apocalypse games as well, where you generate your characters, then you just spend that first session following them around and seeing what they do and who they like and what they don't like. They're really important parts of the game. So character generation is part of the game in systems like that. You, you don't do your characters and then start playing. You're playing as soon as you start assigning things because you've got to do it by bouncing off people to your left and right. Um, mm -hmm. And that that's going to take me nicely, I hope, onto my pick for something slightly obscure and unusual, which I would recommend anybody to have, even if they don't play it, because this is going to be a hard sell, <laughs> okay, for character <laughs> generation, um, is a game uh, lost in the midst of time called Cyber Generation which wow. is, yeah, I know. 
Uh, cyber generation was, it, it is still available as all these things are, uh, but it was a follow-up game to Cyberpunk 2020. Back in the days when 2020 seemed like it was a long way away. So we know it was the, it was the near future, but now it's the near past, weirdly. Um, and mm. Cyberpunk will, will require no introduction from me, but Cyber Generation, the, the premise there, the conceit was that you played the children of the people who played in Cyberpunk. So you could be eight years old. So that's a hard sell already, right? So this is tough. Mm -hmm. um, and you would potentially, you know, your leader might be a teenager. It's funny how Tales from the Loop has come round, and it doesn't seem like such a terrible idea anymore, but I think it was hard back in the 90s for people to accept playing nine-year-olds sure. in a you know, yeah. neo-gritty city. Mm. But one of the things that Cyber Generation did brilliantly was character generation was the first scenario. So your GM would read you the first page of character generation and you would answer as players and your answers filled in the character sheet. Filling in the character sheet was the first mission and it would be done in all kinds of really interesting ways. So it would start off with some like fighting fantasy choices about like, here's your situation. Do you want to be someone who runs away from this? Do you want to be someone who talks their way out of it? Do you want to be someone who hits back? And you would start filling in dots depending on your answers. And then your characters would be taken to like a pizza place, which was secretly uh, uh, an arsenal of you know, black market guns and ammo. And you would choose off the <laughs> pizza list. And if you bought like a specific type of pepperoni, that meant you wanted a submachine gun. And you would cross off some credits. And you'd, you'd learn the combat system by being attacked. Um, and you just don't see very much of that. It's not an idea that ever massively took off, but you can see how fate does that in session zeros. And you can see how a couple of other games might might get you started quickly with like a half-baked idea, like a maybe a 13th age, uh, where you could just start with a few things and then see what happens after the first session before you start to fill it out and write it down in pen. So um, that, that would be my nomination for something slightly out there. If you want to play Big Hero 6, that's the game for you. So it's funny how in the last 20 years some of the ideas have come back around. But yeah, Cyber Generation is an odd one, but I really like that approach. No, that's cool. That's cool. There's a plethora of different generation methods out there, and I think anything where you get some some connection between what's going to happen in the game and what you're making, I think's good and something to be championed. I think far too many times people have made characters in isolation without fully understanding what it is they're getting into. So that that sounds like a really mm. cool way of making characters that are going to be appropriate to the game that you're going to play later on as well, which um, a lot of people yeah. do via session zero, but having it built into the system. Seems the way forward. Cool. What's what's the next topic then, Baz? Okay, so um, once you've got some characters, uh, and you've alluded to this already, sometimes you're not entirely sure how to do things with your characters. So I wonder if we could just take a quick sprint through something that was never called this back in the day, but we all know what one means now, core mechanics. So mm. games just used to have rules. <laughs> and then someone came up with the word core, and and, uh, and house systems were, were often a thing back in the day. You, nobody talks about a house system anymore. Uh, but do things come? Things do come out now with a core mechanic, simple resolution stuff or complicated resolution stuff. Pros and cons. What's available? What's good about it? What's bad about it? Um, you know, is it? There's more to life than just a d20 or a set of percentile dice. There's more to life than dice, frankly. Uh, but what's out mm. there for like how you get things done in your games? Uh, again, a wide variety. There are, I think, a couple of still house systems about. So, uh, Modifius use a there lot are. of 2d20, for example. 
and mm. Tales from the Leap is a, a Mutant Year Zero engine or a Year Zero engine game from Free League, and they use that across the board. But with both of those, even though the core mechanic is ostensibly the same, there's lighter and heavier versions of those, and they play very differently. So even though they will be called the same thing, 2D20 or Year Zero engine, the actual games play a lot differently. So that's that's something to bear in mind, I guess. Mm. One thing that drives me, I'll get out of the way, is when there's a core mechanic that works for a lot of things, but not everything. So <laughs> if you think about uh, World of Darkness games, typically had roll pools of D10, but initiative is roll 1D10 and add a number to it and things like that, or has been in certain iterations. So if you're having a good core mechanic, I think you want something that's going to be good for everything, or you want several different mechanics that do different jobs. So the one ring we've mentioned previously before, and that kind of has three mechanics. It has one for journeys, one for interactions, I think they're going to call them councils in the new edition, uh, and one for combats. But they'll do a very good thing for that particular style of bit that you're doing. Because one of the problems could be with having just a core mechanic is you're trying to make one thing fit all the situations, which may or may not work. Uh, from a player-facing point of view, you might like that, because you might just want to learn one thing and use that for everything. That, that makes sense. So, I would argue if you're going to have just a core mechanic, then something simpler is better. So, recently kickstarted was Orbital Blues, or Best Left Buried was Zach's previous game to that, which has got a quite simple D6 mechanic and it's kind of got advantage. It's not quite that, but you can have the upper hand and roll an extra D6 and, and basically normally roll two D6, but with this, roll an extra one and pick the two best. And similarly, if you've got a penalty, you roll an extra D6 and pick the worst two. And that's largely the mechanic that works for lots of things, so the target number is always the same. Or things like Barbarians of Lemuria, uh, you always need to, roll, need to roll a nine, and again, you roll two dice and maybe add one or take one away and that kind of thing. So those kind of simplistic systems, if you just want a core mechanic and just want to play and let your narration do most of it, I think are really good. So pick something that's not GURPS for playing that sort of game, even though people do play very like GURPS. But that seems, that seems a waste when there's there's other opportunities, why pick something with lots of rules and then not use them? I don't know. That's that's a that's a personal <laughs> choice, I think. Because ostensibly as well, we've mentioned Apocalypse World, and that is really just roll two d six and add a number, and then see what you get, and you get one of three outcomes. And it's either a ten plus means you win, a seven to nines win at cost, a, a sort of mixed success win, let's call it that, uh, and then anything lower you you fail. Uh, so that's that's quite simple as well. But there's the mechanics of. Uh, how the game plays out narratively around that and making moves and all kinds of things. So in my babbling, I think what I'm saying is that when we say core mechanic, that might just be rolling 2d6 or a d20, but is it actually, is that all the mechanics or is there more to it than that in terms of who gets to speak when or when you can you apply abilities to it? And there's all kinds of other things that are mechanics that aren't actually written down in the, in the particular section. I don't know if I'm making myself clear. I'm mm. probably not. But I think you know what I mean. Maybe I'll listen as well. As well. <laughs> no, I get it. I totally get it. I think that there is there are some games uh, that are kind of not much more than a core mechanic, realistically. And that's, mm. that's not a slight on those yes. things either. You know, you can, um, you know, if you take, uh, for example, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll go with Fate or Fudge System, which is where it came from. Um, that's a system of dice that just have either blank sides, pluses or minuses on each dice. And you roll a little handful of those and pluses and minuses will cancel each other out and blanks don't contribute at all. And you'll just have a number that will either, most of the time will stay where it is or it might go up slightly or it might go down slightly. 
I mean, and that's a pretty good core mechanic, um, um, and it could be applied to so much stuff. And it's applied to a ridiculous amount of stuff in Fate. It can do everything from just you know a person running around on missions to a weather system or a political movement or a fire blazing through a cornfield. There's there's not much you can't do with it with what is ostensibly quite a simple little thing, but it's incredibly versatile and is used right the way throughout the system as well. You know, it's never not mm. used, is it? Uh, there's a there's some other stuff that goes on top of it as well to give it a bit more uh, some story beats with some fate point and a little economy of, of of narrative that goes backwards and forwards between GM and players. But it is basically you've got a number the bigger the better and you want to score more pluses than minuses and you're nudging your number up and down. But it does a lot with that. It does a great deal with that and it means that people have taken that core system. And it's gone off into its own little world of a million different hacks and follow-up games and little twists on it and so on. So, you know, super, super versatile. So that's what I would call a core mechanic. Even if you pick up any particular fake game, it will have its own little twist on it. And it will do it in a slightly different way. Yeah. So if you look at something like Savage Worlds, the core mechanic of that's fairly simple as well. You've kind of got a ladder of dice that go up in bigger, more faces as you get better. And... You're trying to get a target number, which is typically four. And it all seems quite simple. But for me, what makes Savage Worlds sing is all the extra bits. So if you're not looking at using tests or aiming and cold shots or all these other things that are kind of... I don't know whether you call them core mechanic. That's where I'm kind of like wondering mm. about what we call core and not. Because if you don't, you can play without using any of those things and just roll some, you know, a couple of D6 against stuff and try and get a four. But it's all the extra bits that make the game fun and interesting and give you tactical choices and decisions. And if you ignore a lot of that, I think you're missing out on the fun of that particular game. Yeah. Whereas I do know a lot of people do like playing just a core mechanic. So they might like, for example, BRP games where you just roll a D100 because you know if I've got 70% in hits with my axe, I've got a 70% chance of that happening. And they just want to roll those dice and get that number. That's fine. Uh, I think for me, for more gamey type stuff, the core has got to include a lot of the things around the edges as well, which I don't know. I think I'm struggling with your definition of core, not how you defined it. <laughs> but let me, I'm, let me take I'm inventing back. what you think your definition <laughs> might be and arguing about it before you've even told me what it is. No, that's true. Let me, let me just take you back 22 years, exactly 22 years, so the year before 3rd edition D&D came along. Okay, So this is ancient history already. 3rd uh, right. edition comes over in the year 2000. Up until that point, Dungeons & Dragons did not have a core mechanic. And it's the big boy on the block, always has been, probably always will be. So it had all kinds of things. Sometimes you roll high, sometimes you roll low, sometimes you roll 2d6, sometimes you roll a d20. And then you've got all of your effect dice. It's every polyhedral. There's charts where you might roll percentage dice. And that may even be on the same stat. You remember stats like strength 18, 0, 0. Bonkers, yeah, yeah. you know, two mechanics within one stat. Absolutely crazy. But people got used to it, and it was very different, and there was different things for different things, and there was morale tests and this, that, and the other. There was hit dice levels and so on. Uh, third edition D&D comes along, and it introduces, I think, the concept of core mechanics, So we better go back there to find out what it was, which is the D20 system. Uh, and it's not the only dice that's rolled in the game, far from it. But most of the game, it's a D20, you add a modifier, and you want to be scoring as high as you can. And, and that's the rules of the game. And you can get someone playing at that point with that. Obviously, there are other things that spin off of it, but that's essentially it. And the modern iteration of Traveller would have done the same thing with 2D6 against mm. a target number of gotcha. 7, I want to say. 
Yeah. So that's where your core <laughs> mechanic comes. It doesn't mean it's the only one. It means it's the one at the core. And there is definitely choices to be made. So, for example, I don't know why, but I just like to roll high to succeed. Not I don't like to roll low to succeed. So if a core mm. mechanic, like basic role-playing, asks me to roll low on a set of percentage dice, I don't engage with that as much as I will with a game where I have to roll high. So I would steer myself away from those games. I also like dice pool games, so uh, World of Darkness stuff with bunches of D10s, or my personal favourite is the old-school 7th C Legend of the Five Rings roll-and-keep method, where you roll yes. a bunch of little dice, but you only select a few of them and you keep them for yourself. That kind of tactile core game, core mechanic element I love. And, and 7C might be a great, or Lemonshire of Five Rings might be a great example for you, because as you know, there's a lot more to the game than that. But if you're if you're reading the game example of jumping over a chasm or climbing a wall, the thing they always put in the example, the core mechanic <laughs> is the way they tell you to do it. <laughs> yeah, sure. Gotcha. Does right. that help? So <laughs> so let, let's, let's throw a couple at you then. So uh, one that we both know, uh, Godlike and Wild Talents, the one roll engine yeah, I think it's particularly interesting for people because you roll a bunch of d10s, and uh, how high the roll is, how, how, what's the height of the number, is it 10 or 9 or is it low, like one or two, tells you uh, the quality of the roll, and the width, how many of the 10s or 1s you get, tells you how fast you did it, for example. So the, the, the sort of one of the quotes from the game is around, if you're running a race, if you roll two 10s, that's quite high, so you, you definitely... You know, you do it with good quality, but it's not very really wide, so it's not very really fast. So you run a good race and not be out of too out of breath, but it's not particularly fast. Whereas five ones is wide, so it's really fast. You're going to win, but one's low quality, so you'll be coughing your lungs up and dying at the finish line, kind of thing. Uh, and and that's kind of like uh, that sort of height and breadth all in one roll gives you some idea of the dimensions you can use for the game. And then just lots of other interesting things, like in a fight, tells you who goes first, whether you hit, how much damage you did. And does all kinds of things together, which so that's uh, that's definitely one people should check out. And it's also got extra bits like hard dice that you can always set to a particular number, or wiggle dice that you can change after you've rolled, and things like that. So if you're into uh, manipulating dice pools, definitely check out One Roll Engine for things like that. It, it behooves you to have smaller groups, I think, because everybody's supposed to roll at the same time, because you might cancel out each other's numbers and things, and it can get a bit complicated. But but definitely have a look at that sort of stuff. Uh, probably a left field one to have a look at while we're talking about pools of things is Houses of the Blooded, which uh, was also written by John Wick, who did Legend of the Five Rings and other stuff, and Seventh uh, Sea. Now that's got uh, a couple of interesting bits. One is that you assign values to your stats, and one of them has to be zero. So there's always going to be something that you're absolutely mm. rubbish at, which I think in and of itself is an interesting thing, even in times where we have... Um, character creation where you've got point by and stuff nobody ever gives themselves a really bad one uh, but in that game you have to have something you're awful at so that's that's an interesting choice in and of itself so how it works is you decide upon your intent you say what you want to do you gather a dice pool and then you roll your dice and try and get a 10 or more and if you succeed you decide whether you succeed or fail and if you don't then the GM has authority and gets to decide what happens uh, the interesting bit is dice you can put aside, called wagers, uh, can then be used to add extra details. So if you're trying to assassinate someone, for example, you might say, your intent might be, I'll try and kill someone, but then you might add wagers like, I've done it without anyone else hearing, and or there's no one else to see, or other wagers like that. And when it's a simple task, it's quite straightforward. And when it's opposed, 
say you're in some kind of negotiation or um, perhaps you are the someone has to play the guard captain trying to spot if someone's trying to assassinate the king or whatever it might be then you both state your intent one will be to get to murder the king and the other one will be to stop the murder perhaps um, then you roll dice and see who gets highest and they get the priority uh, but then you can take it in turn to spend wages to contradict each other or to add yes buts uh, ands as well and, th and things like that you can't contradict anything that's happened previously but you can add in extra details so you might succeed in your assassination and then someone else can spend a wager to say but uh, the king clouds uh, shouts out loudly when he's killed and this alerts, might alert guards or something and you could then spend a wager perhaps to say but there's no one around to hear and that kind of thing so there's a bit of a back and forth and the interesting bit about the mechanic is how much do you wager or not and you have a dice pool that you've assembled but you need to roll at least a 10 to succeed to take part in that and you want to get higher than your opponent gets but the more dice you hold back the more wagers you'll have to have either add extra details or to to help yourself out if the other person's kind of adding wages to put you in a tough spot so there's a nice uh, balance there between what's my opponent going to roll um, do I think I can beat him how, how much do I want to ride my luck uh, and how many extra bits do I want to say about the story it does require obviously uh, everyone involved to be good at making stuff up on the fly and to be coming up with extra details and, and contradictions and well not contradictions because you can't outright deny something that's happened already but um, it's good at that kind of back and forth I think perhaps sometimes of like the, the Princess Bride uh, in the film when there's that kind of I know but I know that but you know that I know that you know that and that, that kind of like back and forth interaction I could see that working really well in Houses of the Blooded but then it's like that for all conflicts whether it be, be like a, a sword fight or anything like that so lots of really cool stuff in there I think that's a really interesting mechanic that people should check out if I've not completely put you off <laughs> Half the listeners will be going, what? The other half will be going, uh, is this on drive through How do I get this? They want to find out more. So it's, it's probably going to have the desired effect. Um, my pick is uh, is similar in a way. And I think One Roll Engine, which I had on my list as well, which I think is a forgotten classic, to be honest. This may have fed into it as well. I like the relatively newfangled Genesis system. It wasn't always called that. Um, Fantasy Flight Games, um, their little dice pool system which they've used in a lot of different games now, uh, from games like their Star Wars iterations, of which there are many, Legend of the Five Rings, uh, and eventually they've turned it into their own generic system as well, hence Genesis, uh, which can be used to power well, largely whatever you want, really. Um, and it's one of those ones that, again, is going to be complicated to explain. So I won't try and explain it in any level of detail whatsoever. But what I'll say is it does appear to be a bit of a Marmite system. There are people who love it, mm. and there are people who really cannot get behind it at all. Um, and I'm always interested in Marmite stuff because I think if you love it, you really love it. So the idea with Genesis is that you'll, you'll roll a pool of dice. You are likely to have a handful of dice most of the time. And those dice will be, some are good for you and some of the dice are not good for you. Some of them are the GM's dice that have been pressed into your hand as well. There'll be advantages and disadvantages all mixed in together. Dice will all be different colours, they'll all be different sizes and none of them will have numbers on. So this already sounds like a game within a game within a game, which it kind of is. And you'll drop them all on the table and you'll have to start sliding them about. And it is a little bit like reading the tea leaves. But what it does is so much more than you pass or you fail. 
uh, it gives you it's more even than a trinary kind of thing that you might get from power behind apocalypse where you pass fail or something in between you can pass you can fail you can do it with cost you can do it without cost you could get an advantage you can store some stuff for later it can bring in new pieces of the story it can stunt pieces of the story a whole bunch of stuff is done in one go more than just to hit and damage the whole thing is is to be interpreted and picked out and yet there are hard and fast rules for how all of this works so it's not quite at the level of something like everway uh, which our friend of the show Jonathan Tweet's been on to talk about before where there's cards that you would actually have to interpret and not necessarily there be any right or wrong in this there's definitely hard coded rules behind the dice roll in Genesis and it would take a little bit of practice but in the hands of a group who know what they're doing with it it's it's it could generate some genuinely interesting results rather than just be something to get past in order to get to the next bit of the story which you know a d20 roll can be after six rounds of combat in D&D no one cares about those anymore in Genesis you have to care about every roll and it is well worth knowing about if you are any kind of student of dice resolution mechanics if you're as desperate as me <laughs> yeah it's got stuff around upgrading to a different die that's got more faces on it and different symbols and things like that mm. Uh, I, yeah. If you're into playing on Roll20, I definitely recommend if you've got a, a Premier or a Pro account, whatever it is, uh, they do some character sheets on there. And one of the, the challenges can be with Genesis is learning all the symbols, learning what cancels out, uh, working out what your result is when faced with lots of dice sometimes. But that uh, the character sheets and the, the inbuilt system they've got on there will do all that for you. So you can press mm -hmm. buttons and magic happens and it tells you the end result and, and things are a lot simpler. So yes, it's... Um, it's a system that does reward some play because you need to understand what's going on, don't you? It's not as easy as like rolling yeah. a dice with some numbers on it and be able to tell. You have to kind of get into it. So, um, yeah, if you played it once and didn't quite get on with it, it might take two or three goes for you to get into the groove of what everything means and how it all works. Yeah, I think so. I think so. And it can be overcomplicated, as a lot of these things can, as in overcomplicated by its critics. It's not nearly as difficult as I've just made it out to be. If I was putting the dice in your hand and explaining how to shoot your blaster pistol at a stormtrooper, you would soon have it. It wouldn't be it would it wouldn't be any trickier than rolling a D twenty and adding a modifier to it against a target number, which if you've never done that before can be equally as opaque. So it just depends who you're learning mm. from and how, I suppose, doesn't it? Okay. Mm. Right, uh, chapter three in our little jaunt through characters. Um, it's a bit of a circle back. So we've got a, a character generated and we've got some ways of doing things, usually with dice, but sometimes with cards, whatever. Um, one of the other, th the other bits and pieces that you often find on character sheets, less to do with numbers normally, but not always, is stuff about your character's personality. Um, and it could be as old school as having an alignment written on your D&D character sheet. Or it could be super new school and you could just have your character sheet be a list of adjectives and a set of approaches to things and and who who you are most in love with around the table and who you want to murder. Um, but games will often want to include this kind of stuff and there'll be other games that just eschew it completely and say that role playing is down to the player and nothing to do with the character sheet. So I think we would be remiss if we didn't talk about some games that address those kind of motivational attributes literally the characteristics of your character and how you play them around the table and i think we could touch on stuff like sanity rules because they're they're kind of common as well aren't they or horror that kind of mental status effects so what have you got in your library for that guys yeah i like stuff that actually has um an effect on play or will come up 
So I'm less keen on write me four pages of A4 about the background of your character because that doesn't actually do anything. If you look at Savage Worlds, you have edges and hindrances, so that might give you stuff like a major enemy, which is then guaranteed to come up in the game quite often, or particular flaws or quirks, or advantageous things about your character that you can then hit. And uh, for the positive side, it will give you advantages in play, and in the negative side, it means you will act in a certain way because playing to your flaws will then result in you getting more bennies off GMs who are more generous than me. But that's how you're supposed to do it anyway. So so that kind of stuff's good. Uh, another good example of, of sort of like being able to bake stuff in is uh, World of Darkness games we've mentioned. So Vampire, for example, you might have contacts or influences or resources or things like that. So you can put dots in things to kind of build in stuff that your character has influenced or people that like you or hate you or certainly have some sort of contact with you as well. That's uh, That's another good one. I like the idea as well in stuff like so the Forging the Dark games quite often have something where you have a gang and I quite like the idea that you've got influence along a greater number of people and then how other uh, organisations view yours which can lead to how your your character's done that and influences things. We've mentioned Barbarians of the Maria briefly which is quite a simple system. You have lifeblood normally that which is taking damage and in ever when i think or every when it's called is like their generic version of that system uh, quite a neat thing they've done just to kind of like uh, give you something else to do is added kind of like a, a resolve track as well so that can be things like uh you can use it as hit points in social conversations you could use it as a sanity track as you play a cthulhu stipe adventure that kind of stuff so that there's ways of having uh, i guess uh, social hit points or things uh, is, yeah. is one aspect we could use yeah, and yeah. Uh, no one love all of those games. It's a complicated one, isn't it? Because it's a real patchwork approach that the gaming industry takes to this kind of stuff. Um, some games don't have any of it at all, and some games uh, almost predicate the entire system upon your personality. Um, but ones that I would pick out, uh, there's a clutch of games from the 90s that really got to grips with addressing this kind of thing. And um, they were coming out of, uh, of decades of D&D and RuneQuest and Traveller and classic games like that. And in the 90s, it was it was seen as very important to start talking about what sort of character you were playing as well. Uh, and my picks are things like Unknown Armies, uh, which is into its third edition by this point, uh, really for its madness meters, which are, to my mind, the best representation ever of, of people's mental health uh, and their stability or instability therein and the things that they do and the actions that they have taken and what that does to the, to the psyche of the character. And it's actually a really simple system that just revolves around becoming more hardened to something um, or end up becoming isolated or you know, inured to violence. There's four madness meters, I want to say. I hope I'm right on four. And, um, and five, really... I think. Oh, is it five? Okay. And I never got to the fifth one because if you've got trouble in four, you don't need to worry about the fifth. <laughs> but it's, um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a lovely system that Call of Cthulhu, goodness me, it, it makes their sanity death spiral just look a little bit clumsy. I hope they won't mind me saying that, but you know, madness meters are a really nice way of doing it. Uh, but my actual pick for personality mechanics goes to a game with a similar vintage called Over the Edge, which is not a complicated game in the slightest. It's very rules-like, but there's so much personality powered by just the tiniest of things. Uh, something I stole from my own game when I wrote it is a thing called Tells. 
and it is as simple as if you've got a really good number in a stat uh, or an ability of any sort you simply have to come up with a very short phrase that shows other people in the world what that number means so if you're very strong to keep it very classic you could decide to write next to your number bundle of muscles or works out regular or gym bunny you get to pick what that is it's just a little phrase but it's a phrase that you can utter in character so when the GM goes around and says describe yourself you don't say you've got strength for you just say you're like a well-oiled machine or whatever it is you've chosen mm. you can do that to any of the numbers on your on your character sheet and it instantly customizes you makes you different from all the other strength four characters you will ever meet um, and it's a lovely way of visualizing your character and gives everybody else around the table something to hook onto. It's such a simple concept. And, and other games, like uh, PDQ games from way back, way back in the early 90s, they, they had almost nothing but those kind of tells, you know, uh, and it, they could be damaged and so on. But it's just mm -hmm. a really interesting way of taking what can be a bit of a spreadsheet if you've grown up on stuff like Hero System or GURPS or D&D or whatever, and all of a sudden your sheet's full of adjectives and it changes the way you play it changes the things you say when you play yeah yeah the, the all-time old classic is that original laser focused indie rpg pendragon which has mm. personality traits which uh add up to 20 on either side but you have a bunch of pairs of things so you have trusting and suspicious or valorous and cowardly and things like that so it's it tends to drive play if characters don't know how to act you kind of like well, look at your personality traits and tell me, do you trust this guy? How trusting is your knight, for example? Uh, and there's neat mechanics for those numbers changing depending on how you act. So as well as being a guide, it's a kind of two-way street that the more you act suspiciously or or suspicious of people, your suspicious rating will go up and that becomes that defines your character and it becomes hard for you to trust people as well. Mm. So that's, that's a game from way back, but if you haven't looked at Pendragon and how personality traits uh, and passions and things like that work, definitely worth doing and, and, and again it's that kind of like leaning into the system thing i like where it, it guides you on how to play and also how you play guides the numbers i think that's just a really a neat and elegant uh, way of doing things yeah it's a good feedback loop isn't it my character my stuff on my character sheet informs mm. the world which informs my character and back again okay so um there's one more broad category of stuff that you would find on character sheets in the main there's always exceptions isn't there but let's take a look at kit resources gear how that's handled. Uh, have you got a great big shopping list with weights and coins uh, laboriously written in next to it? Or do you want to pick up one of those games where it's got a wealth stat? Or maybe one of those games where none of that matters at all. And you could just have stuff on demand as the story requires. Loads of options for this one. There's the gamut, isn't there? There, there really are, yeah. Uh, so things like uh, Aeon Trinity from, from back in the day was the first game I remember having a resource stat in. I think it's, well, all the World of Darkness games had something similar. We have dots and resources, mm. and you rolled them to get something. But they can be quite weird in sessions where you get paid money, and it's like, is that worth an extra dot? Or, you know, if a character starts out with five dots and resources, they, they're basically super rich anyway, so then money is not an option for any part of the games you play beyond that. So I kind of like the abstracted thing, but you kind of got to also bear in mind that it can take an aspect of the game away if someone's just like Donald Trump and has lots of money and doesn't pay the taxes, for example. But yes, uh, I guess for me I'm kind of like beyond the good old bean counting days, but 
one of the the tropes that I've seen quite a lot that that seems to like against what matters in game, and uh, with things like how much armor can you carry or what quality of armor can you buy, and if we go back to the old days of like RuneQuests when it first came out and stuff, you'd have to spend more to get better quality armor that weighed a bit less but gave you better protection and stuff, and it's that kind of war gear thing. Like I'm not really bothered about how many rations you've got or how much rope you take. But it's like how how many weapons and ar- and what armor can you have? That seems quite important, which is taken forward to modern day in something like the One Ring, for example, where all that really matters for encumbrance there is how much war gear have you got, or do you travel light? Counting pittons and stuff you can do. I know a lot of the old OSR games and things like that. They like that kind of stuff, and are you scrabbling around for coins and what can you afford, and do you have enough torches? So if you want to lean into that, you certainly can do. I prefer less shopping trips and worrying about that kind of stuff and making it important we've mentioned blades of the dark and things like that and i like them for having lists of equipments down that will be appropriate to your character and you do a thing where you kind of say what's your loadout is it going to be light are we trying to sneak into somewhere or is it in the dead of night we're going the series i can go heavy and that'll give you a number of boxes you can tick on your equipment and as you're going around you will tick things off as you want to use them without having to say up front what it is you brought. But you've just got a, a range of things depending on how heavy your loadout is, for example. I think it's important for me in gaming these days anyway to not try and play gotcha with the players and say, you know, did you remember to bring the rope? Otherwise you can't climb over this wall and that kind of stuff. I'd much rather empower players and give them interesting choices. But I think, as I mentioned before, there's kind of that balance, isn't there? If you're running a game that's based on limited resource like players house have to buy things and are short of coins then you really need to have some kind of uh, economy to buy things otherwise mm. what, what's the point almost uh, i guess one of those sort of like buying things aspects from vessen that i quite like is that all the things on the equipment sheet uh, give you a bonus so you do have rope or a medical kit or things like that but they specifically call out where you get pluses and minuses. And if you have a guard dog, you get plus one to your vigilance and things like that. And that seems like a much more interesting way of doing it rather than having to pay for mundane items and you just have them or you don't. It's like if you have the right thing, then you get bonuses in game. So I think, again, I'm, I'm leaning to those sort of things again where uh, let's not worry about every single coin, but if you have to pick kit, then make a reason for it. Either you've only got a limited number of things you can use per session or... They give you a bonus when you use them or things like that. So I like those sort of systems at the minute where you've got access to lots of stuff and there's either a limit on it or you get some mechanical benefit. Yeah, I think yeah, I think I'm the same. I, I like equipment to matter. I like to have stuff on my character sheet that could be used in the game and it's going to be important in scenario. Uh, but I don't know how to buy it <laughs> or account for it. Um, shopping trips, new, no, not <laughs> interested. Thank you very much. Nope, not at all. Um, and and there's loads of systems that will that will assist you in making your equipment important for the game, but not an accounting exercise. Uh, Gumshoe does it very well with the preparedness stat, so it's something you can roll against. Mm. Uh, it's like a little version of quantum equipment, I suppose. You don't have it until you need it, and then it might be there if you are prepared enough. Um, and there's no necessarily there's not necessarily yeah. a gamble in that either. You could just drop a point out of your pool, and you have got that flick knife that you didn't have to worry about writing down until you needed it. Uh, so those are really nice, you know, little shortcuts straight to the story, 
which is what they should be, rather than uh, a space on your character sheet that if it's not filled in right, is a block to any potential story. Or it's just making the story mm -hmm. harder to interact with because you've got to worry about how heavy everything is and does that mean you can get to the town in time before night falls? And, you know, I've probably made it sound more interesting than Encumbrance has ever been just by saying that because it's never even that interesting, is it? <laughs> it's, just, it's just about piling stuff up. I think, on the other hand, though, Encumbrance, which is the old-fashioned term for loads of stuff, it's a word I never knew till I played role-playing games, <coughs> but... There are games built almost entirely around it. Torchbearer would be the poster child for fantasy games, which is based entirely around how much kit you've got, <coughs> excuse me, and resource management. Um, and it does what it sets out to do very well. Uh, and then on the other end of the scale, a game that I would recommend for its approach to equipment would be uh, Numenera, uh, which is uh, post-scarcity, very, very, very far future, and the only reason to have anything on your person at all is because of its interest value. And it does a really cool thing, which is it just um, it just floods you with cool equipment. You get given multiple cool bits of equipment, half of which you don't know what it does. It's all on a nice little card. So you can take um, a thing called a cipher, and, and that's just a catch-all term for a cool piece of kit. You don't know quite what it does until you press the button or you turn it on or you twist it in a certain way. And it will always do something cool, but it is almost disposable. It's not going to be hanging around for long. And you better use them or lose them because there'll be some more stuff coming along soon. And it's a really nice devil may care kind of attitude towards equipment that give you nice little one shots. You can't be bored with it because it's not going to be hanging around for very long at all. Um, and it's just a really nice fast paced way of dealing with kit, which never even has to make it onto your character sheet. It's nice and ephemeral and moves along at a nice zippy pace. And I do like it for that. Yeah, I, and I know it, it upsets people having things that are um, like you don't know how many arrows you've got in your quiver and things like that, but I do like Lucy's Dice from the Black Hack and later iterations, yeah. where you, you might have, say, D10 in arrows. That doesn't mean roll a D10 and that's how many arrows you've got. It means every time you shoot some things in a combat, then you roll the die and see whether your arrows have reduced or not, and the die gets smaller and smaller until you've eventually run out. But I, I like that kind of abstraction, and I upset some people because they think, well, surely when I break camp, I can count my arrows and know how many I have, which which you could. And if you wanted to institute a mechanic of doing that and the cost per arrow or how many hours it takes you to fletch one, then sure, I do that. But I think a nice shortcut and getting back to the action is that usage die mechanic. And another kind of like slightly random way to mention Pendragon again is um, the squires for your knights pack all your kit. So whenever you want something, you make a squire roll based on their age to see whether they remembered it or not, and if it's in good order. I found in-game, the lack of certainty for those things actually makes it more interesting. Uh, if you see your arrows dwindling, because you've rolled unluckily every time you've used them, or your squire forgets that key thing at a crucial time, they become like bits of role-playing gold when you're trying to think of a new way around it, or you're, you're trying to conserve resource. Much more so than if you had a definitive number and you parceled them out as you saw fit or tried to buy more and replenish the resource at any point. So um, there's something to be said for variability, even though I know for some people that's not quite... It doesn't quite um, fit in their headspace that that should be the way it works. Yeah. Yeah, you've got many options as there are games for this kind of stuff. And, and thankfully, I think it's quite modular as well. You can, um, you can, find, you can find an equipment or a resource piece from a game and probably insert it into your game of choice. I mean, certainly when I play D&D &D, and I play D&D &D quite a lot, 
I don't think we've written down gold pieces, silver pieces, or any of that stuff for quite a long time. And even though it's, you know, some would say it's a central part of the game, but it doesn't seem to bother us too much. We can excise it from the game because that's not the way we run. It's not the way we play. Uh, but equally, it's all there if you wanted it to be. And certainly at low levels, if you're scrapping around looking for the money for a suit of chainmail, that's a that's a scenario driver. Um, so, you know, you can pay your money, take your choice, write it on your character sheet or not. Right. That is the character sheet completed, guys. So I'm sure there's more to it than that. But we've got all of the major elements there. We know how to generate characters. We've got some personality mechanics. We know what dice we're going to be rolling. Uh, we've got some kit or some resources or some way of managing it. We're pretty much ready to play at that point. Um, next thing to do is go and take it into some fighting, some magic and some stuff to do. So without further ado, let's have a punch up. Where do we go for interesting <laughs> takes on the venerable combat system that no matter what people say, no matter how they try, still powers most of the trad games out there and a great deal of the indie as well. Conflict is a thing. So games and interesting takes on their conflict mechanics. Yeah, so probably the first thing to mention, which we've not touched upon yet, we've sounded a little bit, certainly trad in the way the games we've described and stuff, but there is task versus conflict resolution. So if you're playing something like D&D or RuneQuest, you'll try and roll to hit and then roll some damage. Uh, maybe the opponent gets to roll a parry or something, depending on the game. But there's also conflict resolution, so something like Duty and Honor, my good friend of the show, Neil Gao, a Napoleonic game, does like a whole fight in one flop of the cards. It doesn't use dice, it uses a deck of cards instead. So that's interesting, if you've not entered into that arena before. I know there's a lot of discourse on role-playing circles about how long should a fight last and when should you end it and that kind of thing. But you might want to check out games that have conflict resolution like Duty and Honor because then it all comes down to like one, one roll of the dice, one flop of the cards, and you see whether you've won or lost. And that can be an interesting tech, um, change of pace. So if you've not looked at something like that, I highly recommend doing so. Things like Pendragon, I've, I've kept pressing the button on, so let's, let's also mention <laughs> Warhammer <laughs> Fantasy Roleplay. Yeah, those sort of games, so the, the latest iteration of Wolfrop, have opposed roles, and Call of Cthulhu's gone the same way as well for combats, which I think is useful. Back in the day, a lot of games had roll to hit, the opponent rolls to dodge or parry, then roll to damage, then maybe even roll for armour, and there could be a lot of rolling dice and not a lot happening. So it's good to see a lot of games, even the older ones, now getting updated to do opposed roles, so you both kind of like roll at the same time and bundle it into one thing to see what's happened. I like Warhammer for having a few hit points, so you can, or wounds as they're called, that you can soak up a couple of hits, and then you start rolling on critical tables where things get really nasty and you might lose fingers or an eye or something. I think that's, uh, that's an interesting way of doing it, rather than the typical D&D of having a number of hit points to get rid of and then start making death saves, for example. So um, I know Merp had its old critical tables, but adding things like having wounds or other disadvantages or conditions and things, they can all be very interesting. Guess possibly what people are leaning towards more these days is shorter combats. I would suggest if you if you just look to the One Ring as well, the combat system, that's quite abstracted and is useful for having kind of range bands, but not really. So it's how involved in the fight you want to get to, to be. So if you go in the forward stance, it means it's easier for you to hit your opponents, but also they have an easier time hitting you, for example. And each of the different bands, 
depending on how you position yourself, has also got a special feature you can use. So in forward stance, you can awe your opponent. You can intimidate the goblins and make them run away, potentially, and that kind of stuff. And if you're in one of the more rearward stances, you can kind of defend an ally and that kind of thing. So having extra bits you can do, depending on where you, you put yourself in the fight, I think is quite interesting, as well as the abstraction. And the other good thing about One Ring I've mentioned quickly is um, that you have hope and hate points, so that the characters spend hope on certain things to improve their chances. But the GM has hate, which works asymmetrically and differently, which can fire off and make uh, wolves take great leaps. So your little hobbit at the back, he's firing his bow and thinks he's safe. You can spend a point of hate to make the wolf jump all the way over the warriors that are defending him and, and start attacking the poor little bugger uh, out of the blue nowhere and that kind of stuff. So uh, systems where... The GM mechanics are different than the player mechanics, I think are always very interesting and useful. And it's nice having that kind of like secret bag of tricks because that keeps things interesting for the players as well. If the GM can still do stuff they weren't expecting. I think that's one of the good things about certain mechanics for fights these days is keeping it exciting. Because, uh, I don't know, if you play RuneQuest and you fight a brute, nine times out of ten you know what you're facing. But um, in games, perhaps like Best Left Buried or something, where the monster's completely alien and new and crazy, and the GM's got his own special rules, that just leads to some interesting fights. And uh, I'll briefly mention before I let you back in, uh, Alien from, from Free League. Mm -hmm. One of the cool things from that when you fight an alien is they've all got uh, tables from the cells and what action they take. So rather than the GM having a set of stats to aggressively go after the characters, he would roll on this table and decide what the alien does that particular time which might be do the thing where it opens its mouth and the second little mouth comes out and snaps and hisses at you and then you've got to make a stress roll or it could be tries to pick you up with its tail or it could be uses its claws or you know one of a bunch of things but I do like that kind of randomness to what might happen from the monster which is out of everybody's hands and you're all kind of like waiting to see what happens this round so that, that's mm. another cool little combat trick that's been introduced cool so I, I can segue from that into my picks because I quite like gnarly combat. So I think if you're going to have them, have them, have them large. I like task resolution at this kind of level. I could do conflict resolution and it's all fine. Um, and, and those conflict resolutions uh, definitely fit the bill for some certain types of games. Uh, but I want to go do, deep into combat for this section. So my pick would be 4th edition Dungeons & Dragons, uh, which was a game pretty much built around its combat system largely. And, and certainly its sessions could certainly be built around its combats and set pieces uh, that could take up the majority of your session if you wanted them to, because every combat really mattered and you had to invest time and effort into doing it. But it was no time or effort because it was a very enjoyable experience if you were into that sort of thing. Uh, very, very close to being a skirmish board game at that point. Very, very close. And for some people went too far. Uh, for me, it was just right. And I loved all the little combos and the leaning hard into the stuff that D&D had always really championed, but never really delivered upon. Um, and 4th edition went at it hammer and tongs. Um, Wizards of the Coast have softened their stance on that, obviously. Um, and the fan reaction to 4th edition wasn't necessarily everything they wanted from it, which is why they did a 5th. And they will no doubt do a 6th edition at some point down the line as well, when they decide that everything was wrong and now it needs writing. However... <laughs> Um, time has been kind to 4th edition and now people are starting to see it for what it was when they can take away some of the cruft around it and they can see some of the design decisions in there and what they're good for and, and I mean, as you've said to me before the indie crowd were always pretty appreciative of some of the elements of 4th edition even at the time yeah. it was out and now you can see it's it, it's uh, it's 
it's filtered down into games like 13th Age, uh, which do a really nice job of rounding off some of the really sharp, brutal corners of 4E and still making a very exciting combat. And leading into the stuff that you mentioned about Alien, where a monster might have a small algorithm. So depending on the role of the dice and the situation that it's in, it might move down a certain way of behaving or attacking or retreating or using some ability so that the, the poor beleaguered GM isn't having to constantly be on the toes thinking about every little tactic as it goes along. They can just lean into the dice and, and get a bit of support with their game that way. So I really like that kind of branch of gaming. And if I wanted to have a big fight in the game, I would use that. And if I didn't use that, I would just look at Feng Shui which is a game built around cinematic yeah, combat, and that's my favourite type. It's entirely built around cinematic combat, and the scenes in between those combats are literally just connective tissue that designed to pull you out of one and into the next one. A, a really, really influential game from the 90s, retooled uh, for the 21st century relatively recently, Feng Shui 2, is, it's, it's, you need to have it on your shelf if you're a GM or a player. Even if you don't play Feng Shui for what it is, wholeheartedly, there is so much good stuff in there about how to handle set-piece encounters. Uh, it's got a quite quite intuitive and, and a really innovative initiative system of using a shot clock to count down. There's no grid. There's no need for minis. Yet you come away from the fights feeling like you've just used them in the best possible sense. It's, mm. it, it really is it's, it's very, very good at what it does um, and doesn't try to do much else either. So Robin Law's creation... Um, and absolutely, as usual, hits his design brief exactly where it needs to be. So I would recommend either the fourth edition Ranch or Gaming, if you like your D20 stuff, and if you prefer a couple of different coloured D6s, Feng Shui is a must-have. Yeah, yeah, I was going to mention Feng Shui as well, but you, you got there first. So I'll, I'll <laughs> answer a counterpoint for D&D &D then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, my f probably favourite version of a D&D &D like game, if I'm going to play a D&D like game, is 13th Age. Yes. So I like that for, for, for many reasons. One of which is the escalation die, which basically ticks up from the second round onwards and that gets added to anybody's attack rolls from the player's point of view. So fights escalate. But the way I like to play it, and I've seen a few other people do campaigns this as well, is you gain a level every session. You don't have to do experience that way, but each level you've got, you get new abilities and they all key off uh, what dice roll you've made and you will have a selection. So if you jump straight into a convention game at fourth level, there'll actually be quite a lot of stuff on the character sheet you might have to take care of, even as a fighter or a barbarian, which you might think wouldn't be that complicated. But there'll all be things like, if you roll a 16+, plus, you can do this. If you rolled an odd number and this has happened, you can do that. Uh, but if you build up the game from the ground up from first level and get new things, new toys to play with every session, that's a really interesting take on D&D, &D, where you do ultimately have lots of fights and things like that because that's what those sort of games are about to a degree but having lots of extra toys and tools every time which then key off depending on what you've rolled that time might do something different i think that's a really cool way of doing it because it keeps people engaged in a fight longer than they might do normally perhaps if you're playing a game where you know all your abilities are and you just choose every time it can get pretty staid just the fact that there's some variability on which abilities you get to use when, depending on what your dash roll turned up as, I think gives it an extra staying power and, and more interest at the table. Yeah. Okay, mate. Yeah, uh, that's my favourite branch as well. Um, so I think we're in agreement there. But I, I can't... Uh, is it going to be down to me to sell Savage Worlds to people as, as a system for having conflicts? 
Because <laughs> people are bored of me saying it, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Should we just say it's Fast Furious fun, and it does exactly what it says on the tin? It is. Yeah, so it's a really good take on a, on another way of playing, isn't it? And it does do that. So I think um, I think maybe one of the overlooked things in Savage Worlds is its ability to have really interesting fights. Again, don't have to be gridded at all, uh, but it leans more towards that minis kind of space where it's perfectly permissible and in fact acceptable and desirable to have loads of allies, lots of opponents on each side. You can take it all the way up to mass battles and still have loads of individual player agency and it won't take all night to play out. It will take about as much time as any regular encounter might do. So you can really tip your stuff onto the table for Savage Worlds. Or you can keep it super light and just have two ninjas going at it on a rooftop. Equally exciting loads of options it's never just i hit i defend i hit i defend and the narrative stuff that comes out of the card play and your abilities and your description just make for worthwhile gaming is juicy i like savage worlds yeah it's got interesting things like the test of will or just tests i think on there where uh, they can have an impact on another character where they can become shaken which makes it easier for your opponents to hit them and things like that uh, so you can have characters that are just uh, good at taunting or intimidating or things like that. They don't necessarily have to be punching things, but will have a mechanical effect on how the fight plays out, which is really cool. As you mentioned, adding extras and stuff is really simple. So I've had a memorable fight with uh, like a frost giant and tons of snow orcs and ice goblins in Hellfrost. And we had like 20 half guards with us and stuff like that. And the whole fight took maybe 20 minutes, half an hour at tops. And there's probably 80 actors in that fight. But if you get happy picking up bunches of D6s and rolling them and, and being quick about it, you can have like big uh, cinematic fights that go quite quickly and get stuff done. And there's all sorts of bits around extra edges and uh, stuff like that, which give you extra cool things you can do to sort of not break the rules, but twist them a bit. I'm looking forward to the minute, actually. We're just cooking up uh, some Deadlands to run as a campaign. And the game has things like poker chips, which you can use for bennies. And the initiative is card based. So like all that stuff just adds into the theme of the game that you're playing as well, which can be an extra cool bit. Yeah, the, the, the initiative being on the table, I think, is another advantage of the combat in Savage Worlds, that everybody gets a card dealt face up in front of them. So you know who's going next, and it doesn't just have to be the GM that polices that. Everybody else is watching who else is going and reminding them and trying to order themselves to do things in the correct order to get the most benefit and that kind of stuff, and groaning when they see that the bad guy is going to go first again or something like that. So, yeah, lots of extra bits and pieces to Savage that's uh, really interesting in a fight. Yeah, and I think the, the, the connective tissue between all these games is they're not afraid of having a fight. You know, they're not ashamed of combat. It's, it's a big part of their game. If you choose to go one of those systems, it's because you like having this sort of stuff happen. But it's equally easily avoided. It's easily avoided. There are many games that don't have a fight happen at all. So this is an optional chapter in our version of a Frankenstein game entirely. But if you're going to have it, there's some of your, I guess, your crunchier options. Okay, mate, I've got one more thing, I think, which we'll cover in this session, uh, in this session zero, um, and that is magic and all of the other categories that I've kind of got in mind might be served for a second round of this podcast when we get into like the GMing chapters and the look and the feel of the game and the support that it gets. But I think let's round off this player-facing stuff in games that have some kind of magic system, whether that be spells or rituals or maybe you're a being of magic, who knows, what are the interesting contenders? Where should people go for their magic? So let's let's just carry on the Savage World train. Now you've opened that um, bottle of the genie out. <laughs> let's let's not try and stuff him back in. Now he's out. Let's give him an airing. Uh, so 
Savage Worlds by default uses PowerPoints, which uh, I'm in two minds about about games, whether you have PowerPoints or not, or whether you have like um, the Valentine style D&D magic where you have a limited number of spells and stuff like that. There are some alternate rules and settings where you just make a roll and there's the siphoning or backlash of things that you can get, which means you, your magic's unlimited. But reusability of magic I quite like. I don't like it being limited too much. I like the fact that if you're a magician, you can use a lot of it. Uh, the good thing, which... And this is bug feature territory, but for Savage Worlds, it gives you a list of spells that are the bare bones of how the mechanics will work. So a bolt is basically a magic missile or something, and a blast might be a fireball, and there's flight and... Boost or lower trait, which might be strength of a bear or something like that, or weak like hidden. Like, but it's up to you as a player to put your dressing around that trappings they call it within the game into how that looks. And it could be your magic missile might be bolts of acid or lightning or a, a tongue that whips from your palm and slaps someone, or it could be anything you want it to be. Now, some people don't like that; they don't like having to come up with stuff. They'd rather a spell description for them. But for me. Uh, having the bare bones of it and then depending on what setting I'm playing add different trappings I think is really good and the spells list basically everything you could want to do and, and just different varieties and, you, and then you dress it up as you like for your particular game in addition in Swed, the latest version of Savage they've got all the extra upgrades and things to do so you spend more power points and make the, the role more difficult and you can affect multiple opponents or you can exclude people from it or you can increase the duration or you can do things like that so I think that leads me to talking about other games, perhaps like Mage or Ars Magica and stuff like that. But the idea of having not just a spell that does a really niche thing, but a range of mechanics for allowing to do pretty much what you want, and then to manipulate that and stretch it or squash it or move it in a different direction. Uh, Savage is really good for that kind of toolkit approach. And, you know, I'm sure you were going to go on to mention Mage, so I'll probably give you a bit of space on that one. Mm. But that revolves around having spheres and you might pluck from different ones to produce the effect that you like. Uh, and there's different ways of skinning a cat. Uh, and again, it does require the player to come up with reasons or the ingenuity as to how that might fit together and play out to produce something. Mm. But for me, again, uh, liking player agency and player input, those sort of games where you can get to do what you want and explain how it's done and, and come up with inventive ways of doing it uh, are all really good fun. Yeah. Stuff like Mage does turn your magic into an equipment list, almost. It's like, how are you going to use this combination of abilities that you have, combine them in a certain way to overcome an obstacle in a fashion that you prefer? Um, yeah, and I really like it. And and I think you, you mentioned Ars Magica as well, and Mage has definitely got Ars Magica as its ancestor. There's even some stuff in the setting that, that links the two. And uh, a fun fact, uh, Feng Shui, which we mentioned in combat, its dice mechanic comes from Ars Magica, of all places. It shares the same dice mechanic, and that's, they're not two games that you would necessarily put next to each other, but that's where it comes from, folks. <laughs> so, <laughs> really weird. My pick, though, for Magic is going to be from the other end of the spectrum entirely, uh, where you do pick a spells from a list, and I've really defined this as well. A Dungeon Crawl Classics, which is a, an, a very unique take on Dungeons & Dragons-style gaming, um, and it, but it doesn't do the Vancean style of magic at all. Uh, what it has instead is it has a very, very limited number of spells. There's, a, there's quite a number of them, but there will never be more and there will never be less. Uh, there is a certain number. I can't recall it right now. It's something like 67. But that's all of the spells there are. However, 
it is not simply a question of pointing at the enemy and casting magic missile. Oh no, you will be rolling 13-sided dice, possibly 7-sided dice, possibly both of them together at the same time. You'll be rolling on misfire tables, mercurial magic tables, and when you do eventually get to the spell itself, you'll be trying to get a number as high as you can on a chart, which takes up an entire A4 side of paper, just for your one spell. So there is really random chaotic elements to the whole magic casting. The rules are simple, but there's an awful lot of lookups. And who doesn't like rolling on random tables? And that means that your magic missile may be exactly as you imagine it's going to be, or it may have a different effect when it hits the enemy, or it might hit you in the foot, or it might be made of ice or fire or smoke or chaos or, or bring other things into effect. It's really flavoursome and you never quite know what you're going to get. And one of the things I like about it is it does what magic should do, which is it has everyone leaning forward to see what happens. And in almost all other magic systems in games, you know what's going to happen. Even when the, the, the caster of the spell order whatever says, I'm going to do this, it's really just a question of interpreting what happens then. But in DCC, nobody knows what's going to happen. And yes, it can be a bit novelty, and it can be a bit silly, and it can be a bit like, oh, that, oh how does that even work? But you know what? It's inventive. And in a game where you're swinging swords and you've got a predictable kind of outcomes when it comes to hit points and monsters and treasure and, and all of that stuff, it's got a nice corner of the game to let the chaos in. Um, and that's what I like about it. And that's why that would be my pick. Yeah, it's interesting that quite a lot of our picks have had some kind of variability in them. Yeah, I suppose so. Why not even the GM might know what's yeah. going to happen. Yeah, yeah, looking back over the picks, we must have mentioned 30, 40 different systems, and that might be a bit of a thread that runs through them, actually, yeah. Yeah, I guess it's not necessarily magic, probably the only thing I mentioned at the end there. We mentioned One Roll Engine. Uh, let's give Godlike a shout-out, although it's equally true of Wild Talents, where you've got superheroes, or superpowers, uh, but that's essentially magic, right? Yes. And those games have cafeteria-style things, so that you've basically got a list of stuff you can do in various ways and then you kind of build it up together by buying dice for your pool which might be normal ones or wiggle or hide dice as I've mentioned um, so you might pick a power like death gaze and have four hide dice which means you do basically lethal damage to someone's head when you look at them automatically when you cast that spell um, but that's quite a boring power because uh, as one of our good friends who had it said like after the second session he wanted something else to do but there's uh, another bunch of stuff you could do about um, being able to turn invisible or try be a chameleon. And there's like eight different ways you could do either of those. Uh, the number of dice you get and conditions you put on it, like you might have to have a physical component or it might be only in certain times of the year. Or like any number of things. Again, it's a little bit like Savage Worlds in that respect, but probably more so. They've got a real array of things. And the mechanics of coming up with what your powers are going to be, I think, is a really interesting sub-game in and of itself mm. to come up with interesting cool superpowers and then working out how to afford them and I think the real the real sort of like uh, hook bit of it comes from you end up trying to take a lot of negative things or flaws or downfalls for it so that you can afford the cool things and then that gives you hooks for the GM in the game for reasons why your power doesn't work at a certain time or where the vulnerabilities are and stuff like that so not technically magic but uh, if you like building up a set of powers to have have your character how you want and are willing to sort of do a bit of a deal with the devil to, to cut yourself, undercut yourself in certain ways. Have a look at the Godlike or Wild Talents uh, power system. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, or drive yourself nuts and go right off the edge of your sanity and play a game like Nobilis, which was a very, very influential game back in the day. I, it's one of those things I'm sure someone's playing it somewhere, but for a while it seemed like everybody was having a go at it. Um, and it's, it's a game with no boundaries whatsoever. And you, you can and probably will be a being made out of pure magic and the ability to almost do anything. So, the, you know, the, the, the games when it comes to magic can be very, very low magic where you're doing tiny little cantrips, maybe like producing a gust of wind and you have to have a lie down for a week afterwards. Down to stuff like Nobilis where you can blink your eyes and solar systems are imagined out of nothing. So, you know, that's what magic should be. It is, um, as with... Everything we've discussed tonight, um, that there is a smorgasbord of possibilities. So many shades that you can have for every one of these aspects. And when you start comboing them together, there probably is a game out there for you. And I think, you know, sometimes when people are looking for recommendations of what to play, it's very easy to throw a system at someone. But actually, it might be worth considering what you want out of your game and go down to the level of, you know, what, how do we do characters for this game? What's the magic system like? What can we take from here and steal from there? There's a lot of options out there. And I hope that getting this granular has maybe helped some people out or at least given you some ideas for your next purchase down a drive-thru. Yeah, definitely. And if there's some games or even bits of games as we're discussing that you think are important or that we've not talked about yet or you think we might be interested in, uh, do let us know. Uh, as always, we love hearing from you, our loyal listeners and our glorious patrons. We must thank... Uh, once again, profusely, it's people like you that keep us on the air and uh, keep the internet man at bay, keep all the hosting costs and domain fees and all that kind of stuff uh, away from us uh, and in the seven hells where they belong. <laughs> Quite right. And as usual, if you are indeed a patron of the Smart Party, which you can find us at the Smart Party Patreon, it's dead easy to find, type it in, you'll get there. Um, for you know, no more than the cost of uh, not even an expensive coffee, uh, you'll be getting a copy of the Happy Patron, our little mini zine that we release each and every month uh, at time of broadcasting. We've got another one due in a week or so. So uh, there's a nice little back catalogue starting to build up now uh, where there's more stuff in this kind of vein. Reviews, a bit of chats and opinion pieces, some fun stuff, and the serialisation of uh, quite a big adventurous tome, I guess. Yes, the Bone Alchemist, a wonderful splendiferous D&D scenario. Excellent. Right, listen, thanks ever so much, guys. Slightly long one tonight, but we've covered a lot of ground in a short amount of time, relatively speaking. So there's plenty of grist for your meal there. We'll see you next time when we get into the GM's part of this uh, this monstrous game that we're compiling out of bits and pieces we found laying around in our libraries. Bye for now. Bye.